Welcome to the Inside Elections Podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll go over the slowest-burning Senate race on the map, an increasingly nasty House primary in California, and we'll talk about the upcoming primaries for House and Senate in Texas with a special guest. Buckle up. I'm Jacob Rubashkin, Deputy Editor of Inside Elections, and I just finished watching Season 2 of Reacher, which takes place largely in Queens, New York, so either in Greg Meeks' district or Grace Meng's district, but it's very obviously filmed in Canada. And hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, Editor and Publisher of Inside Elections, uh, the go-to place for nonpartisan analysis for about 40 years. Uh, I just watched the movie Dumb Money, which uh, has Keith Gill doing financial analysis on the GameStop stock from his home in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is in Massachusetts' 8th district, south of Boston, represented by Stephen Lynch. But I'm pretty sure this movie was filmed in New Jersey. And we've got a special guest joining us today for the show, Abby Livingston. Abby is currently a writer at Puck News and previously was the Washington bureau chief for the Texas Tribune. And of course, before that, we got to mention she was at Roll Call. Of course. So shout out to all the Roll Call uh, folks out there. We're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming primaries in Texas. But first, Abby, you got to answer the question that we put to all of our guests on the show. What congressional district did you grow up in? I grew up in the Fighting Texas 12th Congressional District, which is currently represented by Kay Granger, but she is retiring uh, in the next year. So we have a very competitive Republican primary there. So I'm very excited that my hometown of Fort Worth, Texas is on the map this year. And did you add fighting to that, uh, to the 12th? <laughs> it's a tip of the hat to Stephen Colbert and the Colbert Report. <laughs> And do you? I don't want to. I don't want to deny you the opportunity. Do you have a show or a movie that you're watching or watched to know what congressional district it takes place in? Yes and no. So I'm currently headlong in a binge of rewatching The Desperate Housewives, but unfortunately, that show is in both a fictional town and fictional state. So I'm going to give you my backup, which is I am in a sort of arrested development with the Sopranos, because I think my favorite character is about to get killed, and so I don't want to see that happen. So I'm sort of stuck. So if we use the Sopranos, it's part Bill Pascrell, and I believe that's the New Jersey Ninth, uh, and that would be where the Bada Bing is, and I covered a congressional race there many years ago, and the Sopranos was very much on my mind, but Tony Soprano's house is in Mikey Sherrill's district. There you go. Well, I didn't realize that the Desperate Housewives were in a fictional state, even. I just looked it up. It's an eagle state. That is what it's called. And I, oh. I, I didn't even look it up. I saw it on a prop envelope that said Eagle State Correctional Facilities or something. So I was delighted. I feel like they could have done better than that. But there's <laughs> got to be a plot line with like a, a, a scandal-ridden member of Congress at some point in, in the many seasons. It feels like that's something they might get into. 
My understanding is a character ends up in the state legislature of Kentucky, but I don't want to give any spoilers. Spoiler. <laughs> and, and yet Eagle as a state probably is a better chance of becoming a state than our District of Columbia here, uh, sadly. <laughs> but- that too. <laughs> All right, let's get started. So before we dive into our main stories of the day, let's take a look at some of the biggest congressional news over the last two weeks. Wealthy businessman Eric Hovde finally jumped into the Wisconsin Senate race against Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin. GOP strategists love Hovde's checkbook and willingness to spend millions of dollars of his own money. Democrats are going to highlight Hovde's recent connection to and multi-million dollar home in Orange County, California. Uh, I remember interviewing Hovde back in 2012 when he ran for the U.S. Senate. He ended up losing that Republican primary to former Governor Tommy Thompson. And Jacob's going to dive into this race in the next issue of the newsletter. But this is finally a piece that we've been waiting for on the Senate battleground. I actually think I sat in on that interview in 2012. And I think one thing I uh, am intrigued with is, is he now sporting a mustache? Yes, which was a little bit, it apparently uh, tested well in the focus group because I think there was some (laughs) conversations before about whether he would keep it or not, but it was in his intro video. So I guess we're going, we're going mustache. I'm sure your listeners are would be intrigued to know of how much deliberation this sort of thing can set off in the political class and in consultant world and committee world. So I was, it's something you don't see often. And I was, I, I did a double take. Yeah, I think there there are two permanently mustachioed senators currently in in the Senate: John Hoven of North Dakota and Angus King of Maine. Fetterman briefly uh, had a mustache. I guess he said that he lost a bet with his son, but I believe that he's either shaved it off or has grown back his his kind of more full goatee since then. So. We'll see if the stash pack, as I'm calling them, can uh, can expand their numbers from two to three this fall in Wisconsin. That is some great Senate trivia. Well done, Jacob. <laughs> That's why people come to this podcast. <laughs> I'm all for it. Well, I'm, I'm very invested in the facial hair of our various members of Congress and and kind of DC figures. Uh, I think it's an interesting, it was gone. It was there for a while. If you go back in history, it disappeared for a while. And now it's, I think it's making a comeback. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. In California's 47th district, which is in Irvine and coastal Orange County, so maybe where Eric Hovde has spent much of the last 10 years, I don't know. The APAC-affiliated super PAC United Democracy Project has spent nearly $2.9 million on negative advertising against Democratic State Senator Dave Min in an effort to boost another candidate in that primary, uh, lawyer and activist Joanna Weiss, into the second spot in the top two race. Now, a a February 12 to 14 poll from the Republican in the race, Scott Baugh, found that Min was still in second place behind Baugh, 27 to 22 percent, with Weiss further behind at 16 percent. But that survey did take place uh, before another $2 million uh, was spent against Min, uh, ads largely focusing on the DUI that he had last year. 
so this seat is a must hold for Democrats looking to reclaim the majority. And it's very much become one of the nastiest House primaries out there. We'll know in a week whether uh, the onslaught against Min has been enough to knock him out of that second place spot. Yeah, and and we and I didn't mention. I mean, you talked about this—the critical piece that this House race plays to the House, the fight for the House majority in Wisconsin. That Senate race with with, with Havdi uh, is not at the center of the battlefield. If Democrats, uh, if Republicans are winning that seat, they're probably expanding their new majority rather than it, it being on the verge there. But these are two very important races. Abby, what should we make sure to not miss? The race I'm most interested in is actually on Tuesday, Super Tuesday. It's a down-ballot race in Alabama. It was created by a new redistricting map, and two Republicans are running against each other in the primary, Barry Moore and Jerry Carl. Member-member races are some of the most painful experiences for the House of Representatives. It divides friendships, cliques, groups, caucuses. But what I also think is interesting about it is Super Tuesday is the first election day with congressional races, and that is going to be the first race where an incumbent loses. And as dysfunctional as the House of Representatives is right now, I think that once we start moving forward on that process, uh, it's going to make things a little bit crazier and tensions higher. I will caveat on Super Tuesday. Some of these races may get kicked into runoffs, but starting on Tuesday, we're going to start seeing a slow progression of incumbents being nervous about re-election in their primaries. Yeah. And that race has gotten pretty chippy as well. I, I know the, uh, I believe that the Carl campaign and their allies have been running ads calling Barry Moore a tax cheat. It's gotten quite brutal there. The Club for Growth has come in for Barry Moore. Uh, they've always been big backers of his. And of course, there's that open seat due north in, in the second district, which is the, the now Democratic leaning seat that I don't think people should sleep on. I think that that it, maybe not this year, but that is not a safe Democratic seat. I think that there are uh, universes in which it, it can be part of the battlefield uh, as well. So we'll see who emerges from both primaries. There are crowded primaries on both sides of the aisle. But it's not often that I feel like we're talking about like interesting federal races in Alabama. But uh, this this cycle has has something for everyone there. And Republicans on the Hill can't afford to add more tension to what they're already trying to do. Uh, you know, having a a member lose and and be uh, maybe not be a team player anymore potentially because they they have less to work for is a potential problem. I mean, Democratic Congressman, new Democratic Congressman Tom Swazi who is probably going to be sworn in by the time this comes out, will narrow, after the New York 3 special election, will narrow Republicans' legislative majority by one seat. And this, But these member versus member primaries or members losing primaries, as Abby, as you said, has a potential to just make things even more difficult or awkward. I, yeah, I think what's interesting about member-member races is these these members have to go to the floor together. This is like being in a fight at recess and then having to go to the lunch cafeteria and see the guy you got in a fight with. And so um, you can go through campaign finance reports and see members taking sides on these sorts of things. Um, and this is just, I would just describe the Capitol Hill Republican political class as completely exhausted. And this sort of thing is the last thing they need right now. Absolutely. You're right, Nathan. Let's take a look at our main story of the episode, the primaries in the Lone Star State, Texas, uh, where there are a number of open seat primaries and incumbent versus challenger races that have been dominating the airwaves. 
Meet Wall Street banker Brandon Gill. In New York, Gill's bank did business in communist China. I'm Tony Gonzalez, and I approve this message because enough is enough. Conservative Tony Gonzalez for Congress. When conservatives want something done, they turn to Craig Goldman. I'm Lizzie Fletcher, and I approve this message because our work is not done. As of recording, Texas, the primary is one week away on Super Tuesday, a whole bunch of congressional primaries. While there aren't a lot of competitive general election seats in Texas this cycle, there are a whole bunch of interesting races within the Democratic or the Republican parties, both again in open seats where we've got retirements and places where incumbents are facing some real serious primary challenges. So, uh, Abby, why don't we start off with your home district, uh, Texas is 12th, where Kay Granger, uh, longest-serving member from Texas right now, perhaps? Uh, She's doing... Abby's doing the math in her head, for those of you who aren't watching on YouTube. The dean used to be Addie Bernice Johnson, but she's (laughs) retired and passed away. So I I believe it's her, it's Kay Granger, but I'm not 100% certain. Abby, this is your home district. Walk us through what's going on here. Yeah, so the the population center of the 12th district is Fort Worth, and it's uh, predominantly in Tarrant County, which is the swing county of the state. Um, but it extends out west into the north um, and takes in a bunch of rural area. And so the contours of the race early on looked like it might be a rural versus city type fight. And I think what's important to know, uh, this is sort of something I yell about on Twitter a lot. Fort Worth is a very large American city. It's larger than most cities that come to mind, like Boston or Nashville. And um, it's often in the shadow of Dallas. And so Fort Worth leaders take their congressional seats very seriously. And you will often see some bipartisan movement in order to protect as many seats in Tarrant County as possible for Fort Worth proper. The night Granger retired, you know, I mean, the first name on everyone's mind is the part as uh, the mayor, Maddie Parker, who is very much a rising star in Republican politics. But she kind of likes being a mayor, it seems like, rather than Congress. And so the next name that was most obvious was Craig Goldman, who is a state representative who's very well known in the district. And I first met him uh, around 2006 when he worked for John McCain. He's been around Republican politics forever, and he raised a ton of money. He is facing uh, several primary opponents, including a gentleman named John O'Shea, who has the backing of Ken Paxton, the attorney general, who is on a bit of a vengeance tour post uh, his impeachment in the state government. I think based on my sense of the district and what I see in campaign finance reports, Craig Goldman is a probably going to be okay. I think the question is, will he will this be a runoff race or not? But I think it's a unique exception to sort of my rule of thumb. Whenever a Republican pragmatist institutionalist retires, they're replaced by someone very right wing and uh, boisterous and combative. And I don't foresee that with Craig Goldman. Yeah. And I guess we should we should say at the outset here that all of these races require a 50 percent majority, 50 percent threshold to avoid a runoff. Uh, So something to keep in mind in all these House races. Correct. And and the rule of thumb in Texas, and I'm assuming it's elsewhere, but sort of the way I operated, um, and it doesn't apply to this race, but for runoffs, when an incumbent 
is kicked to a runoff, that is very, very deep trouble for them politically. Henry Cuellar survived it uh, two years ago, but sometimes, so that's something to watch for is an incumbent may come out and say, hey, I got 60% or 45% of the vote and my closest opponent got 20. I was great. No, it's you really need to get 50 plus one and put this to bed and move on. But Abby, you bring up an important point about why this is a race to watch, because even though it's not a general election, middle of the house battleground fight for the majority district, it is still electing a member of Congress who is going to both make laws and contribute to the tone and tenor of Congress at some, in some way, whether it's whether it's for the better or worse. And so I, I, I guess this is an encouragement to folks who are listening and you don't you don't live in a swing state or battleground district that it's still important to vote because primaries usually uh, elect the the member of Congress rather than the general election. I think what's important to know about this district, um, the second political campaign I ever remember happening was the special election to replace Jim Wright, who was the Speaker of the House. Um, he was replaced by Pete Guerin, who went on to serve in the Bush administration. They were Democrats. And then Kay Granger won. Uh, she spent 30 years in Congress waiting to be appropriations chair. So there is a strong right wing to this district, but it does seem like historically uh, pragmatists and institutionalists are favored in Fort Worth. Yeah, and I think obviously Granger is kind of of an older generation of of Republicans, but in some ways kind of fits more into that mold. Nathan, you and I have talked a lot about this with the departure of like a Kathy McMorris Rogers, a Mike Gallagher, legislators who were there to do the legislating, uh, obviously rising to this very powerful committee chairmanship. But, you know, to be the chair of the Appropriations Committee, you got to be a deal maker. You got to be someone who's willing to get the work done. And those are the kind of people that don't really seem to want to be in Congress these days. Uh, so I don't know what that uh, means for the future, but it might not be good. Well, we only have 10 other districts, I think. That we're trying to talk about. What, else, what else is on the plate? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about we've got two Democratic primaries in Houston that I think are of varying degrees of interest. I, I'm curious your thoughts on Lizzie Fletcher's race. You know, she's facing off against a progressive in challenger who has tried to really make Israel a, a defining issue. I know he's got some personal baggage that uh, kind of derailed his campaign a bit. Uh, do you have any sense that that Lizzie Fletcher is is in danger here of losing in an upset? I don't think she is. I did wonder in the fall if that might be the case. Her opponent, Pervez Agwan, was running against her on Israel before October 7th, which I thought was really interesting as this race developed. I followed closely how members were receiving it. Nancy Pelosi donated money. Nancy Pelosi doesn't throw around money unless she thinks it's needed. Um, my understanding was Fletcher reached out to allies in Congress and asked for donations. Um, but yes, he, is, he has run a very dysfunctional campaign. And uh, I think I wrote at one point, he has embraced the curious campaign tactic of self-immolation, picking fights with reporters on Twitter. And that's just not what candidates who think they're winning tend to do. So I think she'll be okay, but she had sort of the um, mixed blessing of 
2021 redistricting, she she won a Republican seat in 2018, held it in 2020. And one of the big questions was, were they going to split that district up, hurt her, take her out, Republicans in the state legislature? Instead, they op- opted to pack her district with Democrats, make it super safe, and then draw a Republican district for another congressman. And so I, it, which makes her vulnerable in a primary. She has to introduce herself to new voters. She has to raise money. She, she, it's a different set, uh, set of voters. And so I don't, I think she always has to keep an eye on her district and run hard, but she's run hard before and knows how to do it. It seems like it's a much more serious situation in the 18th district with Sheila Jackson Lee facing a, a primary challenge kind of in the wake of her pretty uh, steep loss in the mayoral election last year. What's going on there? This is one of the messiest races on the map, and it really is the congresswoman's own doing. Sheila Jackson Lee has been in Congress since 94, 96, somewhere back then. She actually took out an incumbent in a primary. She's got a reputation on the Hill as eccentric and rough on staff, but she is very well liked among many, many members of the Democratic caucus. She has a she's very good in her politics and interpersonally. What happened was she she decided and it seemed like on a whim to run for mayor. Uh, She ran hard uh, and then lost uh, by a substantial margin. The, The loss, I believe, took place on a Saturday. Texas filing was on a Monday, and she did exactly what I thought she would do, which is she had retired and beginning, well, to backtrack, when she ran for mayor, there was another Democrat in the race named Amanda Edwards, who is a very up-and-coming Houston politician who I've been watching for several years now. Amanda Edwards deferred to Sheila Jackson Lee and said, I will run for the congresswoman's seat instead. So you come to this December weekend. Jackson Lee loses the race substantially on Saturday. By Monday, she has filed to run for re-election. And so everyone in Texas politics was watching to see what Amanda Edwards would do, and most assumed she would back down. She did not. She has been raising money. She has tons of money. Jackson Lee has been very depleted in her funds because she's been focusing on the mayor's race. So I think this is a really... uh, You look at Sheila Jackson Lee's campaign finance report and it says she's in trouble. She doesn't have much money and she hasn't got much of a federal operation. That said, Sheila Jackson Lee has the best constituent services in all of Congress. It would not shock me if she knew the first name of every single one of her constituents at this point. She's all over the district. She has a close bond. So while my 30,000 feet, I have not been in the district since this race started where I think she's in trouble, I have had people in Houston, Democrats say she's probably going to be fine. So I think this is going to be one of the more interesting, unpredictable races. Hmm. Interesting stuff. And and potentially, I know there's another candidate in that race that could siphon off maybe enough vote to kick it to a runoff. Um, I know there was a- I probably- Yeah, okay. I think that there was a University of Houston poll from, from a couple days ago that had, it was like Jackson Lee, 43, Amanda Edwards, 38, and then this other guy, Slater, with 3%, which in a close race might be enough uh, to to kick things to a runoff. And to put things in perspective, this is a district that Biden got 74 percent in in 2020. So that's why the you know the Democratic primary is the most important the most important race here. But go ahead, Abby. I, I was going to say if I had to bet money, I'd probably bet on a runoff. Uh, but don't hold me to it in a week. But what I think is also interesting in this race 
and it applies to other races, is just how dysfunctional the House is and how members are coming in and out of Congress um, unexpectedly spending weekends in Washington. And that's really hard when you're an incumbent under threat and you're needing to be in the district campaigning. So I just, I think one of the things I just stressed to your listeners is just how profound the dysfunction in the House is, particularly on the Republican side, and how it manifests itself in so many different directions. Yeah, well, let's talk about another race that I think is emblematic of that dysfunction, the primary in uh, the 23rd district, Tony Gonzalez, which is this vast West Texas seat that covers a ton of territory across the Texas-Mexico border. And Tony Gonzalez won kind of an upset victory, I would say, in, in 2020. Uh, his district got drawn to be a little bit more favorable to him in, in 2022. But he's he's not out of the woods uh, with this primary in, in 2024, right? Absolutely. I... I underestimated him in 2020, and what I can say is he's got he's a workhorse, and that district is hard. That's the old Will Hurd district uh, where you're constantly on the road. Um, so he works hard, and he raises money. So I think he's probably going to be okay, and he has a significant amount of money over his closest rival, Brandon Herrera. Um, I wouldn't bet against Tony Gonzalez, but he is – he has been on the receiving end of a lot of fury from the right. But generally speaking, incumbents who work as hard as he does don't lose re-election. It's the ones who are caught napping who lose. Let's keep it moving. We got two more primaries I want to touch base on. Uh, we have a another Republican primary in the 26th district, which heading back to Fort Worth, the kind of northern Fort Worth suburbs, Michael Burgess not running for re-election, but a whole lot of Republicans, including some familiar names, are taking a look at uh, this race as well. What, what do you think goes down in this primary? I think we're probably looking at a runoff. There are three very interesting candidates to me. There is Brandon Gill, who is probably the most well-known candidate at this point, at least nationally, because he is the son-in-law of Denise D'Souza. He's recently moved to the district, and he's very young. I believe he's 29. The most conventional candidate in this Republican primary, uh, I, I've actually known a very long time, South Lake Mayor John Huffman. He is very well known in Texas Republican circles. I knew him when he was in law school and working for John Cornyn. He is running a very traditional Texas Republican ca Republican campaign. The third candidate, who I think is probably lagging behind, and it's a little interesting that he is, is uh, Scott Army, who is the son of Dick Army, who was one of the leaders of the Texas congressional delegation for many years. But Dick Army, that name is very powerful, but Dick Army retired in 2002, uh, which one was a long time ago, and two... This area has exploded in growth. I, this is the epicenter of people moving in from out of state, building suburban houses and former ranch land. So the Army name may not carry the same kind of weight that it did 20 years ago. And even even in that that last race that uh, when when Burgess and, and Scott Army faced off in that primary 20 years ago when when uh, Oh, yeah, when, that. when when Dick Army left Congress in, in 2002, I think Michael Burgess ran mailers that all they said was, I'm not Dick Army's son. 
which I think, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the advantages that people who have parents or other relatives in politics have when they enter politics themselves. Uh, but sometimes it can be a disadvantage because when voters are kind of confronted with those connections or uh, relationships kind of laid bare, they can reject them uh, as as uh, uh, as Scott Army found 22 years ago. So. That's very that's very saucy for Dr. Burgess. I he, he usually doesn't get like that. Yeah, no, that was uh it it uh I believe that race went to a runoff and and he was considered the underdog and and ultimately won. Uh but I think this 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 race also a lot of outside spending here. A lot focusing on Brandon Gill both positive and negative. All right, last primary we're going to hit on. We're going to Dallas, 32nd district. Colin Allred Democrat running for Senate leaves behind this open seat that's going to be determined in the Democratic primary. Biden won about 66% of the vote in this district in 2022. Seems like this is a two-person race uh, at, at this point. What is your take on this open race? So right now it's boiled down to a race between uh, a state rep named Julie Johnson, who's been very prominent over the last few years, and a trauma surgeon named Dr. Brian Williams. I think a cursory look at this race, I would probably bet on Julie Johnson eventually winning the nomination because her name has been on the ballot before, and I believe she may have raised more than him. So I would I would bet on her. The all red district is very similar to Lizzie Fletcher's. Also, just as an aside, it was a Republican district that Republican state legislators decided in 2021 to do the same thing with all red, which is pack it with Democrats and help preserve Republican seats surrounding him. Um, so it's it's uh, I think this is a significant race. I think Colin Allred's been an interesting candidate to kind of uh, before even redistricting, he was moving it into safe Democratic territory. And now it's that much more. And Jacob, before you chime in on on the handicapping on this race, I wanted to unpack, Abby, a little bit the term packing that you were talking about since we have people listening from various points. If you are packing Democrats into a district such as Lizzie Fletcher or Colin Allred's district, you are basically taking Democrats from the surrounding districts, putting them together. And so there will be fewer Democrats in those surrounding districts and making those districts more Republican. So for some of you watching and listening, that's you just know that because you're not quite normal like we are. Uh, but for more normal people, that is that was the strategy. That, that is why Democrats chose to make a couple of more Democratic districts, because it helps everyone else around them have more Republican seats. But Jacob, what or, or Abby, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, for the instance, specifically the Fletcher seat, uh, Republicans really wanted her out of Congress. Um, but it would have to do that would have destabilized all the Republican seats surrounding her. So it is it is about self-preservation for incumbents versus aggression. Yeah, I, I mean, we Nathan, we interviewed uh, Johnson a couple months ago. Um, and, you know, she is very much kind of enmeshed in the politics of the area, clearly a, a very savvy kind of political operator. And and while Dr. Williams has this super compelling story, uh, and I think he's been able to tap into kind of a, a national network on on some axes, I think sometimes, you know, the 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 political acumen uh, can can mean a lot in these races. But, you know, I, I think that. Um, it's interesting, you know, we've obviously been talking a lot of, a lot about primaries and, you know, we've mentioned both in, in this seat and the Fletcher seat, these were 
swing districts. These were highly competitive races. And what happened, of course, was that in 2021, Republicans in the state legislature made the calculation to basically calcify the the Texas Republican advantage, which it was not kind of a gerrymander in the traditional way that we think about it. Like, oh, we're going to like the North Carolina Republicans where they squeeze every single last seat out of the state possibly. They basically took the the map as it existed and said, how do we shore up every incumbent and and keep our two, two to one advantage here? So they shored up a lot of Republicans, you know, Dan Crenshaw, Chip Roy, the seat that Vance Taylor had Van Taylor had the but they also shored up Democratic incumbents like Lizzie Fletcher, Colin Allred. They created a new seat uh for ultimately Greg Kassar. Uh so I find it interesting the the strategy they use to cement their advantage for the next decade probably. Uh, but that is the reason why we went from talking about Texas as kind of the center of the House battlefield in 2018 and 2020 to I mean, after after the next week and, and the runoff, I mean, there's not there's not going to be much going on in Texas. Abby, we'll, we'll have you back to talk about other stuff, but uh, you know, I think you know, there's there's maybe one one competitive general election race out of 38 districts in the second largest state in the union, uh, which is pretty incredible. I wouldn't underestimate how unpleasant 2018 was for Texas Republicans, <laughs> and they never want to go through a map that. <laughs> They don't want to do that in 2028. So I, it was, it was when I saw it, I was sort of stunned with the discipline of being on defense versus being on offense, which is normally what a party with an advantage does in redistricting. And before we, before we talk about the center race, our conversation with Julie Johnson reminded me that Abby, I don't know if you even know this, but anytime we interview a woman who's running for Congress, I asked them about their softball experience. Now, to bring everyone into the loop about why this is relevant, because Abby has been at the forefront of organizing and being a part of the annual congressional softball game between members of the media and members of Congress. It's a great fundraiser for breast cancer, uh, breast cancer awareness and treatment. Uh, but I, so I'm a little bit on the scouting, and I'm, I'm a scout for you, Abby, in trying to identify. And if I if I remember, I think Johnson does have some softball experience. If I remember this correctly Jacob but it just it's funny that you are you're here with us and, and I'm is... glad I'm glad you're doing recon for me we haven't had a Texan on the team Jasmine Crockett was going to play last year but got injured so the more Texans on the team the happier I am yeah and we also we ask we ask everyone about the the baseball game as well so speaking of Colin Allred he is running for United States Senate let's take a listen at one of his recent campaign ads. As your senator, I'll keep fighting to protect women's access to abortion. I'm Colin Allred, and I approve this message because it's time to bring freedom back to Texas. So there is a mildly competitive primary for the Democratic nomination for Senate in Texas. This is Democrats, in my mind, and I think in the mind of the newsletter, the the best opportunity Democrats have at flipping a Senate seat in a cycle that they are otherwise completely on defense for. Uh, Allred, the, the Democrat from Dallas, is the favorite, but I think there's some uncertainty as to whether he can avoid a runoff with State Representative Roland Gutierrez. Uh, Abby, walk us through this race. What's going on here? 
Yeah. So I think in the more immediate, Roland Gutierrez represents Uvalde, and that has become central to his campaign. But he has not even been in the ballpark of the kind of fundraising Colin Allred has been able to do. I think what's really important to understand about Colin Allred that's unique in Texas is he has run in a competitive district. If you are a federal candidate who's been at the DCCC year in, year out, raising money, the scrutiny, having to speak a certain way and not get yourself in trouble. We just haven't seen that in Texas running statewide. It's often been someone very liberal, um, someone very inexperienced who hasn't been through the ringer. So I think that's what makes Colin Allred unique. What I can say, so I, I spend substantial amounts of time in Texas. I have not been in since the new year when the campaign usually kicks off in the primary. What I can say is, there is no comparison to six years ago when Beto O'Rourke was running and the enthusiasm. Texas felt electric by now with Beto. You don't feel that with Colin Allred. But he, Democrats are much more pleased, national Democrats, with the kind of campaign he's running. It's much more conventional. And he has outraised Ted Cruz, I believe, every quarter, which is a major warning signal. But also Beto O'Rourke did that and did not uh, end up winning the election. Um what I would just say, um, I think the state is exhausted. I think voters are exhausted. This has been, the state legislature has passed so many controversial bills. There have been so many crazy things that have happened in Texas over the last five or six years. Um, I don't know if there, I, I don't know if you could find enthusiasm. But what is unique about this race is Ted Cruz. And my operating philosophy on Texas statewide races is Republicans are generally going to win unless there's um, a weak Republican running. And Ted Cruz proved in 2018 that he can be weak. Additionally, the state, even though it feels like years ago, and it was years ago, his trip to Cancun has not been litigated before voters, which is all to say I still think Ted Cruz will probably be a three-term senator. But I would, I haven't looked at your rank ratings uh, in the last few days, but I would put this race sort of as the Democratic equivalent to the Maryland Senate race, where it may be it may not be about winning it. It may be about draining money from the other side if Republicans have to go spend in Texas or Democrats have to go spend in Maryland to save their seats. Well done. That is how we, uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad on us that that is how we have them rated. We have Texas rated as right. likely, likely Republican, uh, Maryland rated as likely Democratic. And but, you, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the important thing to remember about Texas is it is so massive. It's such a huge state. And even uh, a Democrat like Colin Allred, who has a base, has a lot of money, is up on TV, um, has this massive uphill climb, even just in the primary, to introduce himself to the the rest of the the state. I mean, you mentioned the Beto O'Rourke primary uh, in 2018, how electric it was. Beto won 62 percent of the vote in that primary. Uh, he lost almost 40 percent of the vote to two candidates who were running uh, very uh, underfunded campaigns, um, and that was Beto, right? And I think that uh, the the Gutierrez campaign is is of, of a higher caliber than than either of the two candidates who were running against Beto that cycle. You know, I was reminded today by uh, my friend Ben Camisar over at NBC of the 2014 
Texas Senate primary, uh, where there was a Democrat who was the party pick, a dentist named David Alamil, who was wealthy, had spent millions of dollars in the primary. He got forced into a runoff against a perennial candidate uh, who was a supporter of Lyndon LaRouche, who went around the state with a picture of Obama with a Hitler mustache painted on calling to impeach Obama. And she, uh, Kesha Rogers was her name. She made the runoff in Texas. Uh, it wasn't close. She lost by 50 points. But I think the, the the state is so big and it's so difficult to run a statewide campaign if you're not already a statewide figure that the the potential for a runoff here, I think, is very real. And I would argue pretty damaging to Allred's momentum if he has to spend another, I don't know if it's a month or two months, uh, spending money and fighting off a, a Democratic challenger before he can turn his full undivided attention onto Ted Cruz. Maybe it's not an upside to a runoff, but I think Colin Allred, even though he's in a primary, is already running a pretty general election focused campaign. I mean, he but he has to introduce himself to the, the electorates statewide. So if depending on how close it ends up being in this initial balloting on, on March 5th, I almost wonder if he'll just continue on still having to spend money, but in a general with a general election message rather than a. Uh, sort of an attack against against Gutierrez. And we should have mentioned that O'Rourke's challengers in that primary that um, got 40 plus percent did have Hispanic surnames. And that was, that is, Abby, correct me if I'm wrong, that is considered to be uh, a, a factor or an asset in a Democratic primary Absolutely. that just, that the that having that, even if you don't have the other pieces of a campaign uh, can be valuable. I would also just throw in one other thing, and he was not a star football player, but Colin Allred and I are the same age, and I I distantly knew him in college, and he was he played for Baylor, and um, I was aware of him. I, I it was not like he was you know every person in the state knew who he was, but as anyone knows, Big Twelve football is a big deal in Texas, and so his name is familiar to a lot of people. He had a well, he, he had a brief run with the Titans, I believe, yeah. uh, in in the NFL, and it. Oh, gosh, and I the Texas when we're talking about campaigns being a challenge because of the size of Texas, it's not just the logistics of getting a candidate; it's the money, right? Yes. It's, you have to advertise in Dallas, you have to advertise in Houston, you have to advertise in San Antonio, you have to advertise El Paso if you need, you know, if it's a if it's a close race, like you are all over the place, and those are all expensive, big media markets. I grew up in this place and I didn't even understand how big it was until I worked for the Texas Tribune. And I often see candidates get into kind of swagger into a Texas race and have no idea how big it is and how what they're getting into. I mean, it basically takes two days to drive across the state. It's just it is absolutely staggering. And it is I cannot even imagine trying to run statewide. Well, as your friend, I don't know if I would recommend it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not running for statewide politics in Texas. Don't do it. Don't do it. Come talk to us before you make that decision, please. I will. And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found. Uh, where we highlight something that we've stumbled across. It could be political, sports, music, or something else entirely. You never know what you're going to get. I'll kick us off. I uh, recently discovered that my local grocery store, which is just like a giant in DC, is selling rabbit. 
which I have never had. Nathan, your face right there. Um, Yikes. I have never, I don't think I've ever had, uh, but was very intriguing to me. And I like to cook. So on a whim, I bought a rabbit. And now I have to figure out um, how to cook it, how to make it. So for our, our many <laughs> listeners out there, if you've got suggestions on uh, meals involving rabbit, uh, please uh, let me know, Jacob, at InsideElections.com. But yeah, it's a, an exciting new uh, new foray into the, the culinary frontier that I'm going to embark on at, at some point. I have more questions. I have more questions that we have time for. You said you bought a rabbit. What form is this rabbit that you oh, bought oh, at the oh, store? Oh, I should be clear. This rabbit was in the butcher shop. This rabbit uh, <laughs> is not alive. This rabbit has been prepped. Uh, you buy it as if you would buy a chicken or uh, a pound of uh, chuck roast or whatever you would uh, be making for dinner. I did not buy a live rabbit at the giant. I bought <laughs> a a rabbit that has been uh, prepared for home cooks like myself. Just just to be totally clear about uh, what okay. we're talking about. So it's it's just like buying a chicken chicken or beef, except for it's it, rabbit. It, yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly the, the, the minor difference. Uh, minor difference, <laughs> but um, we'll see. How it turns out, uh, but you know, I, I, I am, I don't impulse buy many things, but I, I do in the grocery store occasionally. If I see something interesting, uh, I will uh, take a stab at it. So uh, keep stay, stay tuned. I'm sorry, we're, stay tuned. We are two very, we're two very different people. Uh, my impulse buys do not involve buying rabbit, but that's okay. We can be different. All right. I know, Abby. Abby I'll, I'll, I won't even bring you into this, Abby. I will, let me let me move on from. Um, I found that the Dallas Dragons in Dallas, Oregon, won their third ever state boys wrestling state championship. Uh, actually, the girls wrestling team, the Dallas Dragons, uh, won. They got second place at state. So I'm wearing for those of you watching YouTube, my old. Well, I say it's an old Dallas wrestling shirt. I wasn't a wrestler at Dallas High School. Uh, I wasn't tough enough, but. Um, but I don't know. I'm just proud of my my former my alma mater, the high school, and proud of the Dragons. Great job, and uh, go win another one and go win another one next year. Well, my contribution to the culture is uh, I am I it's I'm about 24 years late on this, but I have entered the Bay Hive. I am obsessed with Beyonce's new song Texas Hold'em. Um, she grew up in a different part of Texas than me, but she's a few years older, and it's very relatable. Um, and so I am completely obsessed with that song. I'm a terrible dancer. I hate line dancing, but I, I feel an impulse to do it. And how controversial is this? I'm, I'm really not a Beyonce fan or a country music fan, but I feel like there's been some tension or discussion. Is that real or just the internet being the internet? I think it's real. Um, but America's conscience has weighed in and Dolly Parton approves of it and of Beyonce becoming the first black woman to be at the top of the country charts. So when Dolly weighs in with congratulations, that's the law of the land. Yeah, we got a got a whole album on the way. It should be uh, should be a fun time uh, in Renaissance Act Two uh, out soon. Beyonce, if you want to sponsor the podcast, <laughs> we're open to it. I'm open to it. Not yet. Uh, and maybe this will this will inspire other artists to cross genres. You know, we'll get a Taylor Swift uh, speed metal album or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, want she Taylor could Taylor Swift to do punk. 
hey, you know, she's very talented. And I bet even if she can do it and people would be clearly a lot of people would be into it, no matter if it was the quality of it, uh, they would they would certainly consume it. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. Uh, we took a deep dive into the March 5th primaries in Texas, uh, both on the House and Senate side. Uh, we talked a little bit about some other interesting House and Senate races taking place on the map. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions and group packages that are tailored for association and corporate PACs. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us on your favorite platform. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button, subscribe, and leave a comment. If you didn't like today's episode, please email Lyndon LaRouche. We would also like to thank our producers, Alan Chizinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts, and associate producer Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us next time.